Uh, you're not going to regret whether what you had for, you know, whether you bought a blue car or a green car this year, but you are going to regret if you didn't step up and do something bold in the next 10 years, uh, as, as will I. Uh, you and I will both regret um, not uh, staying in contact with people we care about. Um, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean staying in contact with everybody, but that that means actually reaching out to people who you care about and who care about you and spending time with them and making connections with them. You care about that. If you have a chance to take the low road to do something ignoble, to do something dishonorable in 10 years, that's probably going to bug you and it's probably going to bug me. So don't do that. And so when we look at these four core regrets, foundation, um, if only I'd done the work, boldness, if only I'd taken the chance. Moral, if only I'd done the right thing. Connection, if only I'd reached out. Those give us, those are the things that 10 years from now, no matter what age we are, if we, those are the, those are the regrets that we're going to have. And so if we steer our lives today to avoid those regrets tomorrow, we're going to clearly be better off. I'm Debbie Weil, and this is the Boulder Podcast, where we talk about making the most of growing older. Today, I speak with Dan Pink, author of five New York Times bestsellers, including his latest, The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. His books have been translated into 42 languages and have sold millions of copies around the world. The bottom line of his new book is that it's an American thing to declare, I have no regrets. That is wrong and misguided. Dan tells us. Because even though regret is a negative emotion, we can learn so much from acknowledging it and reflecting on why we're feeling it. I went into today's episode thinking that regret has a poignant resonance for those of us past midlife who may be reflecting on what lies behind us or what doesn't lie behind us because we didn't do it. But Dan is pretty clear that regretting an inaction what he calls a boldness regret, can come at any age. As always, Dan does a great job clarifying a multifaceted topic. Be sure to check out the show notes and get your own copy of The Power of Regret. It's beautifully written and a great read. Let's dive in. Dan, welcome to the show. Debbie, thanks for having me. Uh I'm going to start with a memory, which I think fits in with regrets. And I don't know if you remember this, but it was very kind of you. So I want to say that to start. But it was maybe almost 20 years ago. And now this could be a recovered memory, but I think it's true. <laughs> you very kindly met with me at the Starbucks in Northwest D.C. in Cleveland Park. It might have been the first, I think it was the first Starbucks in D.C., for coffee i just have this memory of huh. that do you have any memory i have a vague recollection of it but not a clear recognition rec a recollection of it well that's pretty that's pretty good i think vague um and just uh, i was already a, a fan of your work because i loved your first book free agent nation wow thank you for remembering my first book Oh, my God. It spoke to me so powerfully. First of all, I remember, because I looked this up, it came out in April of 2000, and I ordered it on Amazon in May of 2000, because I saw it on my Amazon page. Wow. Um, and the reason is I was 
working as a freelance, freelance journalist then when my kids were very young and feeling not very successful doing that. And basically you legitimized freelance work, which has come to be known as gig work, gig work since, uh, but what, well over a decade later. So, and I mean, I just, I just thought the book was very important. And, and any, do you have any thoughts or comments about that book now looking back? Well, I mean, I appreciate your saying that. Um, you, no, I, 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 I'm proud of that book. I, I'm, I think I was, I think I might've been a little bit ahead of the voters on that one. Um, and in, in many ways, some of the things, some of the forces that I thought were propelling us into a world where more people were working independently, I actually understated. So remember, I, I talked about technology as one of the things force that, that is, you know, moving us into this world where more people will be working independently, untethered from large organizations. And I, you know, I said technology was one of the, the, the drivers. That was before Wi-Fi. <laughs> it was before widespread broadband. It was before smartphones and social media. So some of the accelerants have uh, e even more deeply accelerated uh, since then. I think the other interesting thing about that book is, is how much corporate America has begun to look like free agent nation. So you got people working remotely. You got people paying for their own health insurance. You got people dealing with their own education and training. So I guess that's what I think about that book. I don't, but the truth is I don't think about it all that often. Although I still get press calls about that book. God, that's, that's, well, I think that's very interesting. Well, of course it's the pandemic that is blurred this distinction between work and home and WFH working from home. It was a long time coming. Oh man. I mean, I wish that had been accepted when my kids were little, but anyway, yeah. Yeah. No, it takes, a, it takes a while for these, it takes a while for these things to, to take hold. When I first started working for myself and working at home, there were people doing it, but I was clearly the outlier. Now, my God, I mean, you see so many people doing the same thing, at least, at least in my neighborhood here in Northwest Washington, DC. I listened to your, uh, Renee Brown's interview with you about your new book, and I absolutely loved it. And I noticed that she asked some personal questions. Oi. May I ask a couple of personal questions? You can ask personal questions. I'm not saying I'm going to answer them, but you can ask. <laughs> okay. Well, they're not that personal. Okay. Um, so you write in the book about making a failure resume. Yes. As a way to address regrets and learn from them. And yes. when you, this is in the book, when you did it, you discovered that there were variations of two mistakes that you kept making over and over. What were they? Oh, you I'm don't happy. Tell, you don't tell yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm, yeah, totally, totally, totally. I'm totally happy to, I'm totally happy to, um, I'm totally happy to hear about that. Um, one of them was one of the big ones, well, there, there were two big ones. Uh, one of the big ones was I, I, I take, I'd taken a couple of jobs earlier in my working life that were terrible and I should have known going in. And the reason I didn't know going in was that I didn't do any due diligence. I didn't do, I, I assumed that I knew everything and I didn't check my assumptions. I didn't, uh, I was lazy in that I didn't do any kind of investigation. I just relied on my own flawless intuition and innate knowledge to make decisions. And I made some big blunders. I guess one example of that would be, you know, I went to law school uh, having never visited a law school having never 
sat in on a law school class, having never talked to a lawyer about what they did for a living. I mean, it's crazy. So that's so, so now I do a lot more due diligence and a lot more investigation to check my assumptions. The second thing is that there were a couple of later in my working life, there were a couple of projects that went south on me. And as I looked at why that happened, one of the big reasons was is that I wasn't that into them. That is, I was I was agreeing to do stuff that my heart wasn't really in. I was doing it because, oh, maybe they can make some money or I don't know, maybe I should try this because it's like the right thing, you know. But I realized that if I am not fully engaged in it, 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 it things don't work. I do a half-assed job and the project doesn't go well either. So now I sort of have the heuristic of from Derek Sivers that if it's if it's not a hell yes, it's a no when I agree to do things. Oh, yeah. Oh, I love it when Derek says that. Um, and you feel that looking ahead or moving ahead, that you really are observing those two learnings. I tried, I tried to. I, I've, I've, I've avoided making those kinds of, I've avoided making those kinds of mistakes and, and, um, a lot um, subsequently, truly. And even more powerfully, I think, or, or as powerfully, I really feel like I've done a good job of transmitting those lessons to my kids. Mm. Oh, I like that. That's a good use of a regret. All right. Second question. Um, this is really not that personal, but I'm going to ask it. <laughs> um, what is your biggest chance not taken again per the book mm. in that in action? I regret that's uh, a regret of boldness or meaning. Of yeah, that's a really taken. good question. Let me think about that for a moment. Such a good question. Um, my biggest chance not taken wow um well you can tell me later but yeah i i don't i don't know about that i mean um i'd have to think about that it's such a good question i should have thought about that for the book oh good oh good okay um well i just you know i i really have read the book and taken all these notes and just came up with things that i wanted to know about you because the book is so interesting but it's always interesting to me kind of how you apply it to yourself sure um so also with Brene, who's just so cool um she gets you to talk about college and you majored in linguistics and noam chomsky if i'm saying his name right and his you know these theories we all hear about about the surface versus deep structure of right. language um talk about that in relation to regret and how we experience it because i know about the four categories foundation boldness so forth but is what is the surface is there a surface feeling of regret that's i don't know just sort of discomfort and then well the deeper feeling it's is, a little like, bit it's a little bit different than that the way that i'm using it here debbie so so traditionally when scholars have looked at this emotion of regret and they've tried to look at and analyze what people regret the way that they categorize it is by the domains of life, the domains of life that you can see, right? So this is a career regret, or this is an education regret, or this is a romance regret, or this is a finance regret, or whatever. Um, and there, those, those conclusions that they made looking at those categories were inconclusive. And even when I did some research of my own, conducting a very large public opinion survey of American attitudes about regret, I found that, th that people's regrets were all over the place uh, with regard to these categories. That's the surface structure. What I didn't realize 
is that there's a deep structure too. And the way that I got to the deep structure, the way that I got to that layer one beneath was another big research project that I did called the World Regret Survey, where I've collected regrets from now 20,000 people in 109 countries. And what I found when I read through, I haven't read through all of them, but I read through the first 15,000 of them. When I read through the first 15,000 of them, what I realized is that the domain of life, that surface, wasn't as important as what was going on beneath the surface more deeply. Um, so let me tell you what I mean by that, because that's a little bit abstract. So I got a lot of people whose big regret was, I mean, it's interesting. For American college graduates, I have a stunning number of regrets about people who wish they had studied abroad. They regret not having studied abroad. I have a lot of regrets in the romance category of people who say there was someone I was really interested in years ago. I wanted to ask him or her out on a date, but I chickened out. Another category, another kind of regret uh, is people who say, I wanted to start a business. I wanted to go out on my own, but I didn't have the guts to do it. So, so one of those is an education regret. One of those is a romance regret. And the one of those is a career regret, except that to me, they're all the same regret. It's a regret about boldness. It's a regret about being at a juncture in your life and having a choice. I could play it safe or I can take the chance. I can play it safe or I can take the chance. I can go back for another semester to something that I know, or I can take the chance of going overseas. I can retreat into my little bubble, or I can take the chance of asking out somebody with a possibility that that person might say no. I can stay in my lackluster job, which is comfortable, or I can take the chance and start a business. And what I found is overwhelmingly, when people don't take the chance, regardless of the surface domain of their life, not every time, but many times they regret it. And so what I hmm. realized is that one of the big regrets that people have are regrets of boldness. And then there are three other core um, deep structure regrets that I think that I found people around the world experiencing. So interesting. I mean, I feel it's sort of like, you know, we're sitting in the therapist's office <laughs> And the therapist says, well, why do you feel that way? Um, it makes total sense. And it, I mean, it's, it, it just makes total sense. That, and I, I really love the um, particular category, boldness of actions not taken. Well, and that's a deep, that, that a, ends up, a deep interpretation. Yeah, that ends up. But, but I think that that's what's going on. I think all those regrets that I mentioned are the same regret. It's a little bit, right. I mean, to use a basketball analogy, it's a little bit of a head fake to say, oh, no, that's a romance regret and that's a career regret. They're both the same thing. It's basically, I regret not taking the chance. I regret not not stepping up and doing something. Um, and, and, and this is one of the, the, you know, this is one of the things about the difference between, uh, again, not to get in the weeds here, but the difference between quantitative research and qualitative research. In one study that I did, I had people offer up their regret and then slot it in one of those existing categories, career education, health, whatever. Uh, but then in the qualitative, where I just collected regrets from people around the world, and I started reading them, I realized that if you listen to people's language, if you read people's language, listen to it, honor it, that you understand that what they're saying in some ways defies categories. Or even more important, as I'm trying to make the case, it actually shows the existence of a different set of more important categories. Mm. And of course, you also talk in the book about how to sort of disclose, how to reveal, how to acknowledge your regrets. But but let me let me move us into a topic that really is related to this podcast, which is, can you talk about regrets in relation to aging? And to me, it just it seems that you know regret it becomes particularly poignant as you are when, when, when one is past midlife, which I am 
because I just turned 70. And, you know, fewer years ahead and looking at the time back. So it time passed. And, I, and again, I scoured your pages for this. And I think you write that for this older group, or as you get older, regrets of inaction increase. And there are more regrets about family or connection versus career or education. Can you comment on those uh, or, or any other conclusions from the World Re Regret Survey that, that you can pull out based on age? So the first one is a very big finding. It might, it's one of the most important findings. It was, it, I, I found it out. I discovered it in the, again, not to keep getting in the weeds here, but in the quantitative portion of my research, the American Regret Project, which was a giant uh, public opinion survey of 4,489 Americans. And the reason that the sample was so large was so that I could draw conclusions about differences among demographic groups. Do men have different regrets than women? Do, um, do older people have different regrets than younger people? Do African-Americans have different regrets than white Americans? And what I found was that not that many demographic differences, except the big one was age. And as you say mm. perfectly, when we're young, in our 20s, we have roughly equal numbers of regrets of action, regrets about what we did, and regrets of inaction, regrets about what we didn't do. But as we age, the inaction regrets take over. By the time you're in your midlife or slightly beyond midlife, it's two to one, inaction regrets to action regrets. We ultimately, what lingers with us, what bothers us, what vexes us over time is what we didn't do. And those are particularly regrets about boldness and they're particularly regrets about connection and relationships. And, and so sometimes the boldness regrets are hard to do something about. So if you say, oh, I really, you know, I wasn't, I, 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 I didn't have enough faith in myself and I, I, and, and I didn't think I had the, the brains and the, and the willpower and the diligence to become a doctor. And if only I had believed in myself and taken that chance, and I could have become a doctor. If you're 80 years old, the chance of you becoming a going to medical school and becoming a physician, they're not zero, but they're small. Um, however, if you have a regret about a connection of anybody, oh, I have this friend I haven't talked to for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. I have a cousin who I have drifted apart from over 20 years or 30 years. I, uh, if I, I have a, a child who I don't really have a great relationship with. Those kinds of things you can do something about. And so those are the things that, so inaction regrets in, in the broad category and then connection regrets really um, in, the, mm. in the specific categories. You know, I had a little quibble with you about that, which is that, and this, um, this is quoting from the book. And you say one reason, and I'm for more regrets about family, at age 70, is that the opportunities are relatively limited to get a PhD or launch a new career or compensate for decades of hard living. And I thought, whoa, that's a bit harsh. Because <laughs> this, this new, well, this new positive aging movement that I'm you know, learning about and delving into and trying to live, it says that, you know, this last chapter of life can open up all sorts of opportunities. Sure. And, and with the right mindset or a mind shift, you can think of these final years as not a lost opportunity, but a new opportunity. So maybe you can't become a doctor, but you can do something else. Absolutely you know, agree. So I, I just, and I thought, well, you know, he's 57 and, and I remember being, you know, 
mid fifties. A young, a youngster like me. A youngster, and you look ahead, and you. I mean, I'm just. Point, I don't know if you agree or not. But I just think it's very, very hard to put yourself in the shoes of what traditionally has been, you know, older age. Yeah. And what do you think? I I I agree with you. You know, um, and, and I I really do. You know, again, if you're 70 years old, I think it's going to be relatively difficult, but not impossible to begin a second career as a physician. Not impossible, but I think difficult. I think it is not difficult and in fact essential to do something where you continue to learn and grow and serve i think that's absolutely within everybody's grasp and i think it's actually an essential part of living here's the other thing though if you have not taken care of your health for 70 years it's going to be hard to turn that around now that doesn't mean you give up you know, it's like, you know, I, it's like this, that, 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 that old Chinese proverb that I quote in the book, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best time is today. But, you know, if you, but if you have 70 years of hard living and you're not going to be able to restore your health in a snap of a finger, does that mean that you should just give up? No, I mean, you should do something, but you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's a matter of, uh, I think it's a matter of degree, but I, I want to double down on the idea that no matter what age you are, you have to do something. You, 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 that that with everything we know about human flourishing suggests that at every age of life, you want to have, you want to be able to learn and grow and contribute and have a person, have a purpose, and be around people who you love and who love you. Mm. That's as true well, when you're 21 yeah. as it is when you're 91. Well, you know, I. You've halfway answered what I was going to ask you, which is, um, you know, you say in the book that regret makes you human and regret can make you better. But and so what a question I kept asking as I was reading is, doesn't regret only make you a better person if you do something about it? And what you talk a lot, it's so interesting about disclosing a regret, you know, writing about it, telling someone about it. Uh, what would you tell a friend? But that doesn't seem like enough. What? Where is that next step to doing doing something about? Well, it? I mean, I write about. I, you know, I I write about that. Here's the thing. It's like here's what we should do with regret. Okay, we can't ignore it. We shouldn't ignore it. That's the whole no regrets philosophy. Ignoring regrets is a recipe for delusion. Um, wallowing our re, in our regrets is is as bad, perhaps even worse. That's a recipe for despair. What we should be doing is confronting our regrets, thinking about our regrets using our regrets as data, as information, as signals. And as you know from the book, Debbie, there's a systematic way to do that. One aspect of it is, you know, disclosure and writing and talking about it is necessary, but it's not sufficient. There are other things that you can that you need to do. Yeah, and actually I'm looking at my notes here. You know, there's three steps. And there's self-compassion, which is very interesting, and self-distancing. I think those are, that, is that part of what you're talking about? Sure, sure, sure. I mean, the way to think of it is that you, you want to reframe the way you think about yourself and your regret. So you want to treat yourself with, 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 with what's called self-compassion. You don't want to lacerate yourself with violent self-criticism. You don't want to exonerate yourself with, you know, over, over-indexed self-esteem. What you want to do is you want to treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. You want to recognize that your mistakes are part of the human condition, and you want to recognize that any screw up you have is a moment in your life, not the full measure of your life. So that's really important. You also want to disclose because disclosure is an unburdening. 
it's also a way to make when you write about it or talk about a regret, it's a way to make sense of it. And then finally, you want to actually exactly as you said, you want to do some self distancing. You want to draw a lesson from it. If I simply forgive myself and disclose it, that's great. That's essential, but it's not enough. I have to say, okay, what did I learn from this and what am I going to do? Um, and, and the problem is it's actually, this is a relatively simple, it's a very simple process. We just haven't given people, equip people with how to do it effectively, mm. which is why, I mean, I think in general, I think in general, we have a problem with negative emotions. We don't treat people how to deal with negative emotions. And so what happens is, is that we either ignore them. We try to ignore them. We say they're not meaningful, always be positive, never look backward, you know, um, you know, look on the sunny side of life, be positive all the time. Um, and I think that that leaves growth on the table or what happens is a lot of us can't do that. So we end up getting completely toppled by them. Um, and they end up, they end up bringing us down. And what we need to do is recognize that negative emotions are part of life, negative emotions, including this most common, the most common negative emotion we have regret is not only part of life, but an essential part of life because it's a teacher. And once we normalize these negative emotions and give people the tools to deal with them, then we're going to be better off. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, and as you point out in the book, it's, it's easier to do that for someone else. So I'll, I'll throw a regret of mine at you and see what you've come up with. So a, a big regret for me is that I've let basically 15 years go by without writing another book because I did write a book and publish it in 2006. And so I, this is how I'm, I've only done a little bit of looking inward on this, but, but I'm in, okay. So I'm in my fourth year of podcasting. So at least, and that's one of your catchphrases, at least I've done that as a way to continue the kind of creative work I want to do. That's good. But what do you want to do a little analysis there? Sure. So your regret is that uh, you regret not having written a book in the last 15 years. Another that's the, book. Yes. That's the regret. Yeah. Another book. Yeah. So, uh, okay. So when you, when you do that, when you think about that, how do you talk to you? When you talk to yourself about that, what do you say to yourself? Oh, Debbie, you were lazy. Debbie, you never figured it out. Debbie, yeah. you know, it's all, it's all negative. Right, right, right. And, and would you, and, and if someone came to you with this issue, would you say that to them? Would you say, you're lazy. You don't, you don't ever, you never figure anything out. No, I mean, you know, no, of course and, and not. I do work as, okay. as a so here, coach. No. So here, so here we go. So here we go. So, um, you know, physician heal thyself, treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt, treat yourself with the same generosity you would treat somebody else. Okay. Number So that, that's one thing that I would say to you is, is, um, treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt, treat yourself with the, the same generosity you would treat to somebody else, somebody else. I mean, you would never say, I, I doubt you would say to other people, you freaking lazy bum, what are you doing, <laughs> right? I don't think you'd say right. that to someone else. So don't say it to yourself. I'm not saying you deserve better treatment than everybody else, but you don't deserve worse treatment than, any, than everybody else. So I think that's an important first step. Second, recognize that you're not that special, Debbie. Uh, I can go into, <laughs> I, I mean it. I can go into my database. I can go into my database of 20,000 20, regrets and find you, you know, within minutes, a dozen people who have a similar kind of regret about not having written a book another book. I mean, in most cases, they haven't even written a first one. Okay. So yeah. you're not that, you're not, you're, you know, you're not that special. So, um, so, so that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is, <laughs> good. Yeah. the second thing, the second thing to do is it is actually talking about it with your podcast listeners and writing about it is actually, is actually really, um, 
is, is actually really important. It's it, you're not bottling it up, you're disclosing it. And then as you talk about it and write about it, you begin to under you might begin to understand why you haven't done this for the last 15 years. Okay, so you're disclosing it to make sense of it. You're disclosing it to unburden yourself. Uh, and then finally, you know, you have to draw a lesson from it. So you have this regret about not having written another book in the last 15 years. If, you know, again, if a friend came to you, if a, if a friend came to you with this regret, what would you what would you tell them? What would oh, you tell them to do? Wait. I mean, I'd say, first of all, you know, why is that so important to you? What have you done in the past 15 years? You know, what does writing a book mean to you? You know, the sort of making meaning out of it. Right. Um, because, uh, you know, in my case, I actually, I was going to write a book about taking a gap year as, as a grown up, but I never could figure out a way to do it in a way that was interesting because I didn't mm -hmm. want to write about house swapping or what right. you do for healthcare or, you know, if you travel in Europe or something. I just, that seems so boring. So, but no, that, but that's the point you say it's the meaning making. And I maybe that's really what's at the core of your book is, is using regret to make meaning as you look back and maybe look forward. Well, I mean, I mean, I, I think that you might, I, if someone came to you who deeply wanted to write a book, I think that what you're, the advice you would give them is okay, get started tomorrow morning. Right. Yeah. Start writing the first start writing two paragraphs of the proposal. Yeah. All right. Well, moving on from that, because I don't want to linger on that. It's too painful. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> just, no, just kidding. But, um, you know, uh, I've, I've just gotten a huge kick out of this. Susan Cain's book, Bittersweet, just came out and I've been reading it and, and of course, reading The Power of Regret. And I thought, whoa, they, there's this overlap between the two books. And that you and Susan are talking about the tyranny of positivity in mm -hmm. our society. And there's also the fact that to me, regret is kind of a bittersweet emotion. And I maybe I'm reading too much into it, but do you see any other parallels between your book and Susan's? Well, yeah, no, I think that I think I think it reflects a moment perhaps where we realize that our American society in particular is completely over-indexed on positivity. Uh, and we think that we should be positive all the time, that we should always look forward. And um, the truth of the matter is, is that positive emotions are really important. Uh, positive emotions are really good. I want to have a lot of positive emotions. I want you to have a lot of positive emotions. I want your listeners to have a lot of positive emotions. Positive emotions make life worth living. But if you have only positive emotions... That is not good. That is not a recipe for healthy living. Negative emotions serve a purpose. You don't want to have too many of them. You want to know how to contend with them. But negative emotions are essential for living, including this negative emotion of regret. Because if we treat it right, regret clarifies what we value and it instructs us on how to do better. In the same way that sorrow or grief that, that Susan's writing about that serves a purpose too. I don't want. I would never want to wave a magic wand and eliminate grief from the human condition, because the reason we grieve is because we love, and so grief, even grief, serves a purpose. So, so again, we want to actually have a slightly more balanced account of what is a good life, and a good life is not a life where you are have positive emotions all the time. A full life, a rich life, a meaningful life includes lots and lots and lots and lots of positive emotions, 
but enough negative emotions to keep you clarified on what you care about and to help you do even better. Mm. And I know you've heard about the happiness curve. Um, which In midlife. In midlife. Well, it's, it's supposed to be, the lowest point is supposed to be, I think, age 47 or 48. And then happiness goes up at every decade after that. So I wondered, can you lay that over your world regret survey? As Maybe. In, when are your when in your life are you apt to feel the most regrets? I'm not sure you can lay it. Well, regret. I'm not sure whether happiness and feeling regret are the same thing. So, so the thing is, is that 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 that, that curve, which is with the work of um, David Blanchflower and Andrew Oswald, have done a lot of that work that shows a, a, a decline in subjective well-being, basically happiness in the middle part of life, usually closer to like the early the, the early fifties. I mean, those might be related, that might be related to regret, but not a sibling relationship, maybe not even a first cousin relationship, perhaps a second cousin relationship. Uh, the, the, uh, I think that the reason, a, and we don't know exactly why that is, but we can speculate why you have that dip at that point of life. I think part of it is that you, for, for certain people professionally, you come in in your, particularly accomplished professionals, you come in to the workplace in your 20s or something like that. And you say, well, of course, I'm awesome. I'm going to be CEO. And then you get to your 50s and you're like, oh, only one person gets to be CEO and it's not going to be me. Um, and so that can be disappointing. That can, that can, that can make, that can, that can bring us down. What's more is that people in that age range are often dealing with the pressures of having both kids and aging parents at the same time. And that can just lead to a lot of pressure and a day-to-day drop in uh, subjective well-being. There also yeah. are, there also are at that point um, when, when kid, especially when, you know, when, when kids get a little bit old enough to get out of the house, that's when they're actually a disproportionate number of divorces. And we know that divorce in the short term, at least brings people down. So I think there are a whole bunch of more complicated reasons uh, I think there are a whole bunch of more complicated reasons for uh, for for for, for yeah. that decline than than simply um, than, than than simply regret. I think the other thing, though, with the, a, a possible reason why you have the uptick in happiness and sub, or at least subjective well being later on is that um, is that is that people have in some ways made peace with certain kinds of action regrets. So let's say that you have hurt somebody. If you go back and make and you don't do anything for years and years and years, but you go back and make amends, that's going to boost your, that's going to boost your well-being. Sometimes people put things into greater perspective or they say, you know what, I didn't become CEO, but I've got this loving spouse and I've got these two right. great kids. Right. And that, you know, now I understand what's, what's, what's really important. I don't know. It just came to me as I was reading the idea of sort of overlaying it, but you're right. But do you think you feel or one feels regret more or less as you age? And I would say less from my own experience. I would say, I would say, I would say differently. Mm. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. I would say that um, uh, I would say people end up, you know, and again, we have this big age effect between action and inaction regrets. Inaction regrets really, really stick with people over time. Um, uh, you know, I don't, I, I think that certain kinds of action regrets 
um, you know, oh, when I was 23, I took a bat, I took a job that was stupid and I shouldn't have done that. I think that people that, that the pain of that can sometimes fade away. But if you've never stepped up and done something in your life, then when you're when you get older, those inaction regrets really, really, really stick, really, really stick with us. So I think that we I don't know whether we, we regret less or we regret more as we age. I do. I do think it's pretty clear that we regret differently. Hmm. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Um, oh, anticipating regrets. Um, you write about that a lot. Is it what can you say about that or, you know, in relation to old age? Well, well, what one of the things that you see is that when we that that anticipating our regrets and trying to avoid them is 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 often a very good idea. Sometimes it can lead us to risk averse behavior. But in general, if we focus on avoiding the big regrets that we know that people have, um, you know, in their in their lives, um, I think that it offers some instruction for aging. So one of the big regrets that people have, as you know, are boldness regrets. So as you're aging and, you know, and, and you have more of your life behind you than ahead of you, which is what I have right now, even in my tender age. Um, you know, I think it's that can be it can be clarifying to think about, all right, what I'm going to in 10 years from now, when I'm when I, Daniel, I'm 67 years old or when you, Debbie, are 80 years old, it's pretty clear what you're going to regret. You're going to regret not doing something bold and interesting and meaningful in the next 10 years. Uh, you're not going to regret whether what you had for, you know, whether you bought a blue car or a green car this year, but you are going to regret if you didn't step up and do something bold in the next 10 years. Uh, as as will I. Uh, you and I will both regret um, not uh, staying in contact with people we care about. Um, that yeah, doesn't mean yeah. that doesn't mean staying in contact with everybody, but that that means actually reaching out to people who you care about and who care about you, and spending time with them and making connections with them. You care about that. If you have a chance to take the low road to do something ignoble, to do something dishonorable, in ten years, that's probably going to bug you, and it's probably going to bug me. So don't do that. And so hmm. when we look at these four core regrets, foundation, um, if only I'd done the work, boldness, if only I'd taken the chance, moral, if only I'd done the right thing, connection, if only I'd reached out, those give us, those are the things that 10 years from now, no matter what age we are, if we, those are the, those are the regrets that we're going to have. And so if we steer our lives today to avoid those regrets tomorrow, we're going to clearly be better off. I think it's very good advice, even, you know, for those of us in the final decades. Um, I love, I think your... it's, I think it's true for everybody. I mean, like, yeah. like, like why, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of remaking your point here. Dan. <clears throat> why, why wouldn't somebody in their seventies want to do something bold? Of course. Oh, I agree. Yeah. I mean, I agree. And I, I it's, and, it's very, and, it somebody, is very... and somebody who is 70 who decides not to do something bold is going to have some answering to do with their 80 year old self. Who's going to say, what the hell were you doing? You had a chance. Yeah. You know, I loved your anecdote about Alfred Nobel. Am I saying his name right? Yeah. That um, so he was very unhappy with the his brother died and the um, newspapers got mixed up and they thought he died. So they said the, the headline was the merchant of death has died because apparently I didn't know this. He invented dynamite. And he was so annoyed, well, first of all, because he wasn't dead. And second of all, that's not <laughs> the headline he wanted. And no. this, that reminded me so much of, you know, David Brooks, you know, should you focus on your resume virtues or right. your eulogy virtues? And I thought, right. you know, that was just a great example because could this be another 
sort of tool in the toolkit to what headline do you want? And you better, if, you know, if that's what you want to be remembered as, you know, a best selling author, well, you're probably right on track. But if it's something else, uh, I mean, I think, I don't know. To me, there's just a connection. I love the anecdote. Yeah, yeah, no. And I, I actually think that David's uh, idea about resume virtues and eulogy virtues is really powerful because, and I think he's, I think it's really spot on, you know, when, you know, when, when, when we pass away, you know, our kids or our spouses or other people who love us aren't going to say, oh, wow, he was so awesome. His last Instagram post got a thousand likes. I mean, that's just absurd, right. you know? Um, you know, they're, they're not going to say, oh, wow, you know, he was so awesome. His, his book was number seven on the New York Times bestseller list, you know, even after a few weeks. They're not going to say that. I mean, they're going to say, what kind of father are you? What kind of spouse were you? What kind of citizen were you? What kind of neighbor were you? What did you contribute? How did you, do, how did you make someone else's life better? What have I forgotten to ask you that you just want to say, or dare I ask you again, what is your biggest chance not taking Yeah, that is such a good, I, I don't know if I have an answer to that one. I mean, I think it's not, it's something that I want to think about. I think it's actually a really ingenious question. Um, and it, um, you know, I guess part of my answer to that is I wonder in reflecting on that is what is whether I, I didn't do a good enough job of putting myself into situations where I had chances to take, you know? So mm -hmm. it, it isn't like, I don't have any memory of saying, oh, if I, you know, um, you know, cause I, you know, oh, if I only gone out on my own while well, I did that, all right, that's not a massive, that's not a massive like boldness thing, but it's, but it's something. But it's not as if I, I was like in my life offered these incredibly glorious chances that I turned down, <laughs> you know. Right. Well, maybe that could be a pink cast. You know, could what be, is yeah. Biggest chance not taken. Um, yeah, that's a great. It's a great question. Um, yeah, because you're you know so accomplished. It's a little hard to ask. But um, anything else you wanted to just? No, I don't offer, think so. Offer? No, I mean, um, let me think if there's anything else here. Um, I mean, maybe it's maybe I, I'm just listening and thinking that, you know, you've made the point that it's not that different as you get older, sort of dealing with regret. I think you've said that. I don't think that I don't think that it, I don't think that it is. I mean, I, I, I think that, um, you know, again, I want to come back if we're talking about aging. I just want to come back to this finding about regret that is as crystal clear as any finding that you can get, which is that what sticks with us over time are these inactions. That's what bugs us. And so I think that that leads us, whatever our age, to have a slight bias for action, to do stuff, to try stuff, you know? Um, and I, I think at some level, at every age, we somehow, we often have the balance wrong. We think that in order to do something, in order to try something new, we have to figure things out first and then do it. And we've neglected the fact that doing things is a form of figuring out, that action is mm. a form of thinking. And I think that's true whether you're 17 or whether you're 70. Well, I love that. I love that. Um, Dan, thank you so much. Debbie, what a pleasure. Thanks for having me on your show. And that's it for this episode of the Boulder Podcast. If you like what you're listening to, help us spread the word. Tell a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. 
and email us at theboulderpodcast at gmail.com. Till next time, I'm Debbie Weil.